If you run a yoga studio, the last year has been tough. No questions about it. And if your dream is opening one, it probably was put on hold. But things are getting better. We are going to get through this and the opportunities waiting for yoga studio owners are amazing. They are there. That's the take from today's guest, Josh Biro, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. Josh Biro is the founder of the Yogapreneur Collective, a consulting company that helps yoga studio owners systemize their businesses for more profit and peace of mind. Josh has helped over hundreds of yoga studio owners transform their businesses, and I'm so excited to have him on the show. Hey there, welcome to the Blissful Bliss Podcast. I'm your host, Susanne Reicher, here to help yoga and wellness entrepreneurs build a thriving online business. If you're ready to make a bigger impact and earn money online, you are in the right place. Each week you learn about websites, digital products, social media strategies, and what's working now to build your online business. And now let's get started. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Blissful Bliss podcast. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah, so great. Um, we just chatted a little bit before we started officially, and Josh is joining us from Mexico, and I'm I'm just hating you a little bit. <laughs> I'm a little bit jealous. You've done everything right. Um, yes, but of course, um, I'm stuck in Hamburg, and he's stuck in Mexico because of the pandemic. And so we're going to talk more about that. But well, maybe we start first, Josh, just like, um, yeah, introduce yourself and what you do. Yeah, for sure. I'm Josh Biro. Um, I'm a yoga business coach and a wellness business coach. I have a program called the Yogapreneur Collective. My family and I are nomadic. We've been traveling for just over six years full time. That's why we're stranded here in Mexico for the moment. Canadian originally. And I believe business leadership is the most important leadership of our time. So my primary mission is to help business leaders, such as yoga entrepreneurs, increase their impact and change more lives. That's do you do yoga yourself? How did you come to work with yoga teachers? Are you a yoga teacher or do you come from the fitness world or... Um, a little bit of both. So like any Canadian boy, I grew up playing hockey. So I was really into fitness, but the result between the sport and the fitness was I was really banged up. So my wife kind of reintroduced me to yoga. I had tried it lots when I was younger because my dad's really into yoga, but um, I suddenly got the, you know, stereotypical benefits of just peace of mind, increased flexibility, weight loss, like just being in better shape and sort of injury recovery. And what really, though, honestly got me into yoga was the business itself, because I had experienced some really great, you know, impacts in my life from a regular practice. And I was excited to share that with other people. So I went to teacher training and the natural progression of things at the time was at some point you started asking the question, well, maybe I should own a yoga studio because that's how I can make this become my full-time job and my living. Because to do that as only a yoga teacher is possible, but it's hard. Um, so my wife and I opened up a studio in Canada, which we then sold after six years and have been traveling full-time since then. And what really got me into the coaching part was my experience meeting owners all over North America. We were driving in an RV at the time. I think we started 
stopped counting yoga studios at like 125 or something. And, I didn't know that um, you've been doing the driving around in an RV as well. Yeah. I have to pick your brain a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah we were full time in 105 square feet with two kids at the time. Oh my God. No, it's just going to me be me and my puppy. <laughs> yeah. You'll have lots of space then. Yeah. Um, so, but in any case, I, we talking to yoga business owners and yoga studio owners all over North America, and then ultimately working online with them all over the world. You know, the, the big epiphany, not that this was a surprise is just very few people open a yoga business because they say, you know what? I just love business. That's not the motivator <laughs> behind what we're doing. What happens is they love their yoga and they love the impact it's had on their lives. And they want to share that with other people and really, you know, help that proliferate in the businesses, in my opinion, the best vehicle for them to do that. So they open a business up, but the problem is they might not know how to operate the business in a way, especially now, because it's more complicated than it's been in the past, um, for it to be fair for them, I would say, and for it to really have the impact that they intend. So that's what got me started on the path of my yoga business journey, I suppose, as well. I think it's been a, let's say, complicated business model or challenging business model even before the pandemic already. I know yeah. so many yoga teachers dream of having their own yoga studio. And I don't know what it's like in Canada or in the US, but here in Germany, it's a lot of really small studios with just like one or two shalas. And like, you know, like maybe they do three, four, five classes a day. <laughs> Or in less in the rest of the day, the it's all empty. Um, yeah, so I, I know that a lot of yoga studios, even before the pandemic, they barely earned enough money to cover their expenses. And yeah. then, of course, Corona happened. <laughs> what is your experience there? What have you heard? Like, what's happening? What is it like in the... Yeah, I mean... You know, one of the things that you're highlighting perfectly, Suzanne, is just that the industry was already not an easy one. I think a lot of people had some image that, you know, you open a yoga studio and people show up and they pay you money and then everything's good. But the surprise for people outside of it is the average studio owner out there makes less money than their teachers. So now there are people who make a lot of money running yoga businesses as well. But it's an interesting dynamic how, how polarized it can be. In terms of the pandemic, what the pandemic showed us was the weakness in the industry, which has been around for at least a decade. And I think that we've been on a path towards it strengthening, um, but it's forced certain things to take place in a very compressed amount of time. So one of the data points that we're starting to get in is there is pretty much 20, 18 to 20% of yoga studios in North America um, are closed permanently at this point. Oh, wow. That's even higher than I would have expected. Yeah. At first it looked like it wasn't going to be so intense, but in the very beginning of this, one of the comments or one of the thoughts that I remember having was just the scary part isn't when the pandemic hit last March, a year ago, really heavy in a lot of the States. The, the scary part's now because now like the funding is dried up. The consumer base is less uh, resilient to putting up with low quality Zoom classes and continuing to pay hundreds of dollars a month. The owners themselves are built out or, you know, just burnt out on the whole thing. So now is actually when we're seeing there be a lot more businesses either closing or doing some major pivots in how they operate. 
So it's okay. still, it's actually, I would say, affecting just as many businesses now as it did in the beginning in a really intense way. Mm. I know. It's like the same here. It feels like compared to the first lockdown, that was like a little bit less than one year ago. Back then, everybody was excited about Zoom classes and like trying them out and trying different teachers. And now everybody's just tired. And it's just difficult to get the energy up to to do a yoga class. <laughs> so yeah. to do anything or something in the same time, more people need yoga, of course, than ever before. It's like a really, really valuable tool right now. So yeah. what tips do you have there? What's your advice? Yeah, well, I mean, to your point, um, and I definitely have some practical things I can, I can put some insights into, but to your point, I feel like it's easy for us to focus on the negative difficulties, but this is also potentially a really positive, like there's some silver linings in this whole thing. And, and on the other side of this is a really good situation because what we're starting to see now in fitness and wellness in general, but especially with the example of a yoga studio, and this would be in pretty much any Western culture, is you have a consumer base of people that in 2019 would have told you, nah, I'm not really interested in doing online yoga. I only want to do it in a studio they've now been educated and trained on how they can participate online. And many of them, although they might still understand that they want to take an in-person class, they, they get the value of doing it online. So we have a consumer base that's re-educated. We have an owner base and a, and a yoga teacher base who understands how to use the technology and leverage it. Because the thing no one's saying is this technology isn't new. We could have done this for the last five, 10 years. Just nobody did it. <laughs> so yeah, just, just a few people. Yeah, that's yeah. Only a few people really, really did it. Um, so, and then also if there's ever been a time that it's been thrown in the world's face that you have to take personal responsibility for your well-being, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, this is that time. So on the other side of this, we have people understanding the value of what yoga offers having more accessibility than ever and having a workforce trained on delivering it. Plus, especially in the United States, um, but as well through Europe, the boomer generation is now going to move into their third age. And there's a lot of evidence to support that they're not going to do the traditional sense of what we think of in third age of life, which is retire and sit on the porch and drink schnapps or whatever. It's actually going to be working on themselves and maybe their spirituality, but certainly their physicality and their lowered stress level. Yoga is the perfect product for that. So there's every reason to think that the next decade coming out of this, we're going to see a massive uptick in adoption, participation, and then therefore also business. I love that picture that you're painting here. It's very, very uplifting. And it's so true. I have quite a few of students who are I, you know, like probably you, you don't want to say old, but you know, like in their sixties or something, and they are embracing now uh, moving their business online, which I love. I think it's yeah. really, really inspiring, and you know, like it's the same, of course, for their students. Like my aunt, she's seventy-seven, and she's tried Zoom for the last, first time this year or last yeah. year. <laughs> so um, yeah, so definitely potential. So um, we just have to get through the next, I don't know, four months, <laughs> five months. Let's hope for the best. Yeah, fingers um, crossed. It's only that long, for sure. Um, for practical application to your question originally, though, Suzanne, what can you do? If you run a yoga business right now, 
I think that the play here is brand authority. And it's not the play that people find very exciting right now because it's not something that you get a payout on right now. It's a longer game. But you got to think that a lot of people in the industry are kind of just holding on and hoping they make it through and, and mitigating their expenses and not really doing a lot. Or they're offering a lot of classes and a lot of service, but they're really focused on how much money did I make today or this week or this month, which is totally understandable because we're in a little bit of survival fight or flight mode. But the missing element is continuing to market and continuing to communicate the value of what you offer so that on the other side of this, when we see that upswing and everything, you're already positioned in the minds of all of the people around you as the local authority on your subject matter. And if you think about throughout history, larger brands that have made it through pandemics and huge economic downturns and all of the up and down, all that happens on the other side of it is they just become more solid as just the go-to source for whatever their product is. The easy yet terrible example is like Coca-Cola. <laughs> Coca-Cola has been around forever. They will never be dethroned as the top brand of sugary drink. And they've made it through all of these things that have taken place. Um, so not that we're trying to be Coca-Cola specifically when you run a yoga studio, but the idea is brand authority right now and just really perpetuating who you are, what you do, what services you offer people uh, and keeping so, that message strong. So how specifically would you do that? Would you advise them to niche down or, you know, like not only like focus on selling 10 class passes and I don't know, um, trials for new people, but like um, yeah. spe sp specialized workshops or. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do, um, but there's kind of two questions in one that you're posing. Actually, one is what do we sell right now? And then the other is what do we communicate or how do we communicate right now? Uh, and I would separate those things because the truth is, as a human being, we're all wired to think about what's in it for me. So what I want to know from you is what am I going to get? Like, what's the transformation that you're going to take me through? And one of the things that I'm seeing happen in the industry too much right now is a lot of conversation around the special price that you're offering your online yoga at or the special deal or the whatever else. And the truth is, I don't really care about that. <laughs> what I care about is what am I going to get? So that's the starting point. So the simple practical thing is write down what are the top three problems that your product solves and be really, really specific. So it's not so much niching down, like necessarily going after a specific avatar, But depending on the lineage you teach, the style that you offer, whatever else, if you are doing a power vinyasa flow class in a slightly heated environment versus a yin yoga class, it's a drastically different product. And it's offering, although they have overlap and the benefits, they're offering a different solution to a different list of problems. So identify those problems and talk about that. We get it. These are these problems that you might have. This is why we solve those problems. Because once you've convinced me on that, how I buy it is easy. I mean, I just, I'm going to say yes at that point. So, so would you um, more recommend to position yourself if you were a studio owner, like more in the premium segment and really focus on, yeah, like you said, brand authority and um, communicating your expertise and what benefits you're going to get? Yeah, I think it, it depends 
a little bit on your market. It is possible that you exist in a market where people still need just basic education on why they should do yoga class at all. That still exists to this day. So if you think you're in that market, don't be scared to do that because even if someone already understands, it's not doing anything negative for you. But specifically to your question, yes, I would say really get clear on the unique value that you offer so that you can be differentiatable from other people. As a consumer, I don't know the difference. If I see yoga studio, yoga studio, yoga studio, or online yoga, online yoga, online yoga, I can't tell the difference. And if you don't give me a reason to understand why you're unique, then I'm going to put you in the, in the red ocean, right? In the big group with everybody. And the only thing left I can use to choose you over someone else is convenience and price, which is terrible from a competition standpoint, because that's a race to the bottom. So there has to be some like, what's your special sauce? What's the unique angle that you offer? Why is it special what you offer? And communicate on that quite a bit. Because um, then other things like price become less, less important. Now, in terms of boutique though, and what we sell, it is a bit of a choice because you have to have a vision for the bigger model. So one of the things I think a lot of owners um, and just yoga entrepreneurs in general are struggling with right now is bigger vision. We're very vision forward people, but I mean, we don't know what's happening next month or next week with open close in the studio, online, VOD, live on Zoom, whatever else. So people aren't spending the time to do that, but now would be a good time to get clear on in five years from now, if everything goes according to plan, where are you going? What's the business you're creating? The reason that matters to your question is the idea would be if you have a clear vision of where you're going, you have a clear vision of volume and that changes what you sell. If my goal is a large studio with multiple rooms with a large membership base and VOD and live stream, and I want to have a thousand members, that's a volume play. So I'm going to price it appropriately to go after that volume. That's less boutique on the other hand, if I'm a smaller studio or a solopreneur, passionpreneur who's running my own online business and I want to do more of like really making sure that my clients succeed at, let's say, gaining flexibility, like touching their toes for the first time and it's kind of more like a course and there's going to be some semi-private or one-on-one -on -one involved with that, then you don't have enough hours in the day to go after volume. You can't service a thousand clients. So then you have to charge more or it's not a viable business. So then you are going to become super boutique that way. And then you have to think about online courses, which is my passion. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, because moving online has opened so many doors in that direction to first and so many opportunities for yoga studios as well as yoga teachers. Um, how do you think, um, are yoga studios still going to continue offering online classes when the doors open up completely again, or are they going to go back to just teach in person? I think a lot of studios will just go back to teaching in person because they don't like the online stuff. Um, I would say, I wouldn't say half, 35% of the studio owners that I work with will just straight up say to me, they're like, I don't like online. I don't believe in it. I don't like it. I don't believe in the teaching style of it. It's been a real challenge for them. I'm doing it because I have to. That's basically what they say. 
And I get it. You know, obviously, if I'm standing in front of you and you're teaching me a yoga class, it's going to be more powerful in most cases than me doing it on Zoom or clicking play on a video on demand system. That being said, back to the consumer education standpoint, it's almost just like, why would you not have a virtual component to your studio to enhance the perceived value of it? And then if we look at your average yoga business and yoga teacher's primary mission, they might not articulate it exactly like this, but the primary mission is to help people. And the first condition of me being able to help you as a yoga teacher is I need you to participate as frequently as possible. So where before I might've only been able to make it into your studio one or two times a week, that's like a good maintenance practice, but a lot of traditional practice is based on like a five, six day a week practice. It's like brushing your teeth. You do it every day. So if that's true, how do I get more availability for you to practice without you having to drive for an hour to get to me and find a parking spot and whatever else on demands or live streaming now opens that up. So it does actually fulfill the ultimate mission of creating more availability for people to increase their frequency with you. And the thing that owners miss is that even prior to the pandemic, the average person in the United States anyways, actually had two memberships. So it was unlikely that they only practiced with you and you were their bread and butter place. And that's the only thing they did. They probably also went to a gym or a orange theory or a whatever else. So they probably have Peloton at home too, or something. So if you don't offer this stuff moving forward, it's not that it would necessarily be hugely detrimental to your business, but it's just a huge missed opportunity because they're probably going to have a membership somewhere else. I think people kind of would expect it to be available still some online classes. So they get used to the convenience of not having to leave the home and you know, you're saving so much time. Classes are normally shorter than in a yep. studio. Um, I also know from yoga teachers who are probably you know, like um, more like traveling yoga teachers who really enjoy doing Zoom classes because you know, like they it's a way to stay in touch with people who moved away, or um, they've been just met on a retreat, and you know, like they live on the other side of the world, so they can still go to their classes now. Yeah. Or yoga studios who have a lot of people who are coming and going. I just did an interview of, okay, like a few, not recently, but I think a few months ago with Radiantly Alive, a yoga studio in Ubud in Bali. And they started an online yoga studio. So with pre-recorded classes, because in Bali, there's just no way to run um, Zoom classes um, with the internet connection reliably. So they didn't have that option. They tried it. <laughs> um, but it's amazing they set that up. And I'm pretty sure that it's going to be successful even if when the studio is like um, open to all the tourists again as well, because then they can, they fell, they fall in love with their teachers there and, and the environment. And then they can get that when they're back at home. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's two really missed opportunities in this sort of thought process around this too, because we're simplifying the conversation um, as everyone does to just think about teaching a yoga class in the standard format of like, it's a 60 or 75 minute class. A yoga teacher's there. They say some words or they lead the class in front and I practice the class. And that's like, that's the box that we've created for ourselves. 
there are so many other opportunities <laughs> in the yoga business. So online courses is something that you mentioned, shorter class lengths that are not meant to be a full yoga class. They're supplemental. Things um, such as programs. If you run a yoga education program, I mean, if we look at yoga teacher training, 50% of people who go to yoga teacher training these days is not to become a yoga teacher. It's to enhance their yoga practice. So then the thought is, well, what if I just had a course that was enhance your yoga practice? And that's hard to land on an in-studio situation. But if you can make a good recorded version of it, and now you can sell it even while you're sleeping, and I can do it anytime it's convenient for me, that's a good idea. I mean, that's just, it's easier to I know, leverage that in multiple ways, basically. I think, yeah, I know um, sometimes maybe a few people are stuck thinking only about Zoom classes and they get tired of Zoom classes. But if you don't like Zoom classes, maybe you feel more comfortable offering recorded classes. And instead of like doing a workshop and it's an amazing workshop, people love it and you only do it one time, you could record it and then sell it and help people with that workshop so you could create your own little library that um, your members get going to get access to, for example. For sure. For sure. So, I mean, I would say this increases the whole value. What I, practically speaking, what I would suggest is if you're running a business um, like a yoga studio is you actually separate these in your mind as three different products. Your in-studio classes are one product. Your live stream classes are a different product. And then your video on demand is a different product. And it's not that there is an overlap, but again, it's not exact, like behaviorally, it's not exactly the same thing. If I click play versus log on to zoom versus show up at the studio, I'm looking for something subtly different. There's a different unique value point. And that then therefore changes what we actually produce there in our product development. This is one of the things that the industry product development in yoga across the board has been pretty slow for a really long time because we're trying to stick to lineage and these other ideologies. It's a little dogmatic at times, but in any other industry, you're perpetually negotiating with clients to, you know, develop your product to make it more consumable and more powerful for them. So this is a way that that is kind of forced on us, but can potentially happen without it forcing us to change what we do in the actual studio. But the big thing I would say here is across the board, most yoga classes have been massively undervalued for at least a decade, in my opinion. Um, and here's the practical thing. Any yoga studio owner who listens to this, I want you to check the price of your drop-in, your single class. And if you are in a Western culture country and it is sub like the equivalent of about $20, it's too cheap And it's actually undermining your business. You need to increase the price of it. <laughs> so I think the my, most expensive drop-in class that I went to was in Singapore. They are crazy expensive there. Yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, but otherwise, yeah, I think it's, um, and especially because normally in yoga studios, very rarely they sell memberships where you pay a monthly price, even if you don't go like gyms and that's their business model. They, pay, they actually rely on people not coming because they obviously right. sell a lot more, you know, like spots than they actually have space for in this gym. Um, and yeah, so it's really, really hard. I think, um, I don't even know how, how it would be possible just to say, sell single classes and earn enough money with that. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the dollars that you get from that person that day is probably a good trade, but in the long run, it messes your cash flow. I mean, the number one reason a small business fails is cash flow, not profitability. You can be profitable in the books, but then something sinks your business like COVID because you literally don't have the appropriate cash flow to weather the storm in the moment mm. that you need. It. Yeah. And that's not just saving money up. I mean, that's a piece of that puzzle. That's your burn rate, but it's making sure you have the consistent cash flow. The way we look at it is cash flow is to your business as breathing is to your yoga class. It has to be flowing and moving for you to be able to sustain what you have going on. But to sum this all together and to your point, the big dynamic change I think here too is the undervalued nature of the business is suddenly consumers will hopefully, fingers crossed, understand how valuable it is to go in and take a real yoga class with somebody. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you already like painted that beautiful picture as well with all the opportunities. So if you would go back to Canada and decide to start a yoga studio again, how would you set it up? What would you think of? What would you do first? Um, I think that I, the, you know, the first studio that I managed, uh, I got a little taste of this. We look at it like, okay, this is the yoga I teach. We're going to make a schedule. We're going to schedule some teachers. People are going to come in. They're going to pay us something and we're going to teach yoga classes and life will be awesome. And it kind of went like that for a long time in the industry. But the truth now is that's not what's happening from a consumer standpoint. So you've got to think that if I get my butt off my couch and find my mat from under my dog and drive across town and find a parking spot and make it in the doors on time for a scheduled class that you scheduled, that's an enormously large action. I've put a lot of effort into that. So the thought that all we're doing is just teaching some stretching postures, that's really not true. Just by showing up to your class, and it's the same online, you know, if I get my three kids organized and find a quiet space and move my stuff out of the way to get my mat down and then log on to Zoom and actually pay attention and don't quit halfway through to go have a glass of wine <laughs> instead, like that's a huge action. So just by showing up, I'm telling you, I'm not looking to just do some stretching postures. I'm looking for what we would call a yoga experience. I'm assuming you can give it to me because it says yoga studio over the door, or you said online yoga business. So the first thing I would do is completely flip the perspective of how I'm entering the business into how do I offer a unique defined yoga experience? Because that's actually why people are coming to me. Now, yoga classes are part of that, but they're not the only part. Okay. Do you have an example? Yeah. I mean, practically speaking, and this is especially if you already have a physical space, but practically speaking, realize that your environment is part of the experience that you're curating for me. Now we understand this in a yoga room. It's often in a yoga class, we'd have like a bamboo floor or a cork floor. Um, we have the gear that people are maybe going to use in the class. We might have some nice music playing or something in the room, but realize that my experience starts before that moment. As soon as I'm in the studio, it starts. So like, what does the studio smell like? Don't make it an accident. Define the smell and put it there for me to run into. What do I see when I first walk in? Is there a memorable feature? What do I hear? The number of studios I've been in that have really awesome music in the class and no music in the lobby, that's strange. 
if I'm going to get really sweaty, can I rinse off afterwards? <laughs> you know, things like that. What if I have to go to the bathroom? What if I have to get changed? Where am I going to keep my stuff? What about safety? These are all part of the experience. So looking at those things, and then even now, especially with online, it backs up further. My first experience of you is actually when I go to your website. What does it tell me? How does it look like? Is it congruent with what I'm going to experience in the studio? There's often studios that are really, really beautiful, but you go to their website and it's super dated and the colors aren't even the same and it's using different fonts and everything else. And it's easy for us to think that, well, that stuff doesn't matter, but subconsciously for your people, it does really matter. Probably look everybody up online these days. If you go, if you have like a carpenter, you probably look if they have a website. It's so important. It's like the first impression that people get from you. Very right. Let's use, the car- let's use the carpenter as an example too. If I need a carpenter to come in and fix something in the house or build something, I'm going to go to their website first. I might look at their reviews and then I'm going to try to take the next step. Be like, okay, carpenter Suzanne is awesome. I want to hire her. How do I, how do I do it? And most carpenters out there won't have, I'll have to make a phone call or send an email and it'll be complicated and I've got to do it during business hours. The checkout process is terrible for me. Whereas the alternative would be very easy for the average carpenter to just have a nice scheduling system in there. You just go in, schedule a book, pay, and they show up and they actually show up on time. My experience being able to do that would be so good. You would close double the sales, in my opinion. Same thing in a yoga studio or a yoga business. If I have to jump through a bunch of hoops, if I'm not sure what exactly you're offering for me or which package to go with, if there's too many options or I have to click 15 times to get registered for a class, a lot of people just bounce and just don't come back for that. So that whole customer flow and journey is part of the experience that you're offering. And it really matters uh, to be able to close sales. But just to be so clear on this, you want to close sales because sales are the way people commit to actually practicing. It's the exchange system that we have. So if you can't close sales, you're not going to get students practicing and you won't fulfill your mission of saving the world through yoga. <laughs> yes, I know. And we, so many yoga teachers have so many mindset issues with that. And yes. But I think, yeah, I mean, I tell my students then, I give them some tough love. Um, you, have, you have to stop telling yourself things like, I hate marketing or I'm not good at selling. That's really that negative self-speak has no place in your life anymore and embrace challenging yourself and stepping out of your comfort zone. Totally agree. I mean, the comment I would add to what you're saying is just for studio owners and teachers who have a money problem, one of the big things you have to realize is money itself, practically speaking, is an inanimate object that has no energy. It's only charged with the energy that you put into it. So you can choose that sales and exchange of money are a dirty negative thing, and then it will feel like that always. Or you can choose to realize that it is a positive energetic exchange that's fair because it's just the best system we have And it can be in service to other people. I'm going to offer you this service of really life-altering, empowering yoga that you've said you want because you've come to me to ask for it. And in exchange, you're going to energetically exchange the money that you've made in your job or whatever else. That's a fair trade. And it needs to be reciprocal for it to be in balance. I think money is like an issue that 
most of us have in some way or another. I was one of those person, but I probably thought I didn't have any issues. But then I started educating myself and like reading books. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> we all have our stories around money. Do you have any um, books or, or courses that you can recommend there or? Um, and I'll put you on the spot here. Yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of one specifically for that. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't matter if nothing comes up. Maybe you have something later and then you send it to me. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I think of a really good one, I'll, I'll send it over. But, you know, the big thing I would say is that money itself is like uh, ironic because we all want it, but also feel dirty about it. And that's some weird, especially in the yoga world, I mean, and that's some weird perpetuated story. But to me, what it comes down to is we are biologically wired to hold on to something that we have stronger than to try to get something new, even if the new thing is better than what we have. And where that fits in is not actually about money itself, but about sales. So a lot of people are scared of being in the salesperson role, because if I say salesperson, The person who comes to mind is a used car salesman or a door-to-door -door vacuum guy or something like that. And how we feel about that person is icky. It's a very technical term, by the way, uh, because we can sense immediately that that person's objective is to take our money from us, even though they're going to give us a product in exchange. So our hackles go up and we build a wall and we fight it back. We don't want to be that person because it feels terrible if the person we're looking at puts that wall up in front of us. So the realization here is that selling, real selling, is a service to somebody else. And where it comes from to begin is you have to approach the entire thing completely neutral to the financial exchange part and start by realizing I'm here to serve you something. I'm here in service of you to help you succeed And that's where the conversation actually lies. And that's where the whole process actually takes place. And it's so much only about what's going on in your mind, how you think about it. It doesn't even have to mean that you have a completely different sales technique. Yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of it is just, we all know we've experienced it for ourselves. If someone has a price for something and they stand and can look you in the eye and smile and say, this is my price. We kind of just accept it. Like, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. If someone's like, well, you know, we'll see. I, we could probably do this or whatever. You can tell, like, they're not even confident in their own product and what they're offering. And it makes us waffle about it, too. So, you know, honor the expertise that you have as a teacher and studio owner. And honor the fact that it holds value in people's lives. And honor the fact that it's fair for you to really be fairly compensated for your efforts. And I would also add, like, um, honor where you are right now and be open to grow, you know, because totally. it's so easy to tell yoga teachers, yeah, you're all not good at marketing and stuff. And that's not true. It's you're fine where you are, especially if you already opened a yoga studio. That's an amazing accomplishment. And I would just invite you to be open to educate yourself and to grow. Totally. I think that... <clears throat> Again, it's a little bit the irony of the industry. There's a lot of teachers out there that I have a conversation with and they say something to the effect of, I don't like this or I'm not good at this. I'm not good at sales or I don't like marketing or whatever. But that's 
funny because how good were you at yoga when you started? Like, <laughs> were you always flexible and strong and balanced and calm? And could, of course not. Like this, and you all the anatomy stuff. <laughs> right. Exactly. So you weren't good at it and now you're good at it and you're getting better at it. Like it's, it's a journey. It's a path that we're on. So as, as pun intended, flexible as we are as yogis, we find ourselves being ironically rigid around certain things, especially when it comes to business. And it just doesn't need to be that way. Yeah. It's like the work that never ends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The self-discovery. I love being an entrepreneur and I've been employed for a long time as well. Um, and I think that I learned more about myself in those last years running and like being an entrepreneur, especially in the online world where I am the brand than all those years that when I was employed and working for someone else, it's just like putting yourself out there. It's scary. And it also teaches you so much about self-acceptance and self-love. And totally. I think it's a very yogic journey, actually. Yeah, I agree. I think that I, I think most yoga teachers would agree that when you're a yoga student, you have a certain yoga experience. Uh, then you go to yoga teacher training and then you start teaching a class and you realize pretty early on that even when you're teaching a class, you're still having your yoga experience. It's part of your yoga journey too. When you open a yoga business, whether that's online or a studio or whatever, it's the same thing. It's still part of your yoga journey. It's like a forced growth through the circumstances that you're existing within. Uh, and it should stretch you. That's okay. That's a good thing. So I agree. And actually, I would even go so far as to say that entrepreneurship is one of the most challenging journeys that will stretch you that you would go for, you know, go through. But the reward is also there on so many levels as well, that sense of accomplishment uh, that can come with that. I think it's a Gary Vaynerchuk quote. Originally, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, whoever it was that it originated from said something to the effect of, entrepreneurship is like choosing to get punched in the face every day and then get up and do it again anyways. <laughs> and it can be like that at times. It doesn't have to be like it that. It doesn't have to be all the time, no, but it's, no. you know, it can be very uh, challenging. So, but that's in itself, I don't know how, how you have such a positive experience from it. I um, well, I had a very challenging job before I was working in advertising. <laughs> so that was more like being punched in the face every single day <laughs> in yeah. comparison. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, but thank you for being so inspirational. Like also like, you know, like what you would do about how you would start your studio, um, what to look out for, um, the opportunities that you see and I agree with you there and coming up in the next for the next decade um, so I hope when you listen to this that you are inspired to when you're a yoga studio owner just like get through those next few months and things are going to get better definitely I think stick it out stay strong but also the practical application point that ties into what we're saying that I would suggest is just keep, keep telling the world about what you do and how you're helping them, you know, make it about how you're servicing other people and how you're serving the world. That's people great will, advice too. Yeah. 
So is there anything else that I should have asked you? Um, I don't know. We could talk this all day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, I think when we look at how do you build a yoga business for the modern era, it's realizing I kind of have like eight pillars that we talk around a little bit in the methodology that we use. So breath is the fuel of yoga. Money is the fuel of the business. So it's, you know, coming to sense with that. It's not a bad thing. Selling is a service as we've talked about. Systems themselves are actually the form of the business. So realizing that you want to do things systemically and actually build it up rather than just you doing it all yourself all the time. You know, to some extent, we have a pillar of surrender. You have to realize that in poses and in business, there's going to be resistance and discomfort. And that's just part of your journey, like we've been talking about. But the next one then is intention. Whatever your intention is that you're putting into your business, it matters. And now, 2021 and moving forward, more than ever, people want to know who they're doing business with and what the intention and the ultimate goal is. They see through the, you know, they want to see behind the curtain, <laughs> Wizard of Oz kind of style. They want to know that who they're interacting with has proper intentions. Um, in the end, in terms of practically what do you need to do when you run a business, it's more marketing than you think. So one of the points that we didn't sort of articulate specifically is just, it doesn't matter if you're the best yoga teacher in the entire world. If I don't understand the value that you could offer me, I'll never even take your class to find out. So marketing is how you, you know, it's your power pose. <laughs> it's how you, it should stretch you. Um, it's really the way that you can, help people understand why they need to participate in what you're doing. Interconnectivity. I think that we talk about mind-body connection a lot in yoga, but what we miss is human-to-human -human connection. And business as a vehicle of distribution also creates community. It's the secondary major benefit of running a business. You teaching a one-on-one -on -one client, you have a connection with that person, sure. But when you have a business, now you have hundreds of people that are connected in some way. And then if this last year has proven anything to us, one of our pillars is, uh, pun intended, being flexible. You have to stay <laughs> agile. You have to be flexible in business. You have to be agile. You have to be ready to just pivot, roll with it, you know, no matter what comes. And that's just practically applying exactly what you do in your yoga class anyway. So, so is this the approach that you teach as well in the Yogapreneur Collective? Or tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. So the Yogapreneur Collective, we use the Yogapreneur method. And basically, you know, the way I look at it, the breadth of, of the business is your money and sales. The body is your team and your organizational structure. The spirit is the community, the students and the classes themselves. And the mind is the business owner. So we're just like everything I know about business, I know it from yoga as well. So we're working on the breath, body, spirit and mind. And the Yogapreneur Collective is the way we've curated it as a membership group because we really want to make sure that you have access to resources, templates, swipe files, videos, et cetera, et cetera, to help you for education, but then resources in terms of a sounding board, other business owners who are working on this as well, because any yogi out there knows it's a little nuanced. You know, the difficulties that we experience in a yoga business aren't 
totally different than other businesses, but they are a little bit different. Like the flavor is a little different there. Um, and then obviously one-on-one coaching is part of it as well to just have, have that other person that's outside of your business to be able to really see the truth of the situation and bluntly tell you what they see and someone to help you with a little bit of accountability to really work on it. So that's kind of what we offer in the Yogapreneur Collective. It's a pretty straightforward thing to start. If anyone's interested, we work with any yoga business owner. That's the way we define it. So you don't have to own a yoga studio specifically, but you have to be running a serious yoga business. Um, so basically that means if you're live streaming on Instagram and asking people to Venmo you money, that's probably, we're probably not the best fit for you. (laughs) If you're like, I'm going to take this seriously and get a website up and going and offer classes and programs in a specific way, that's exactly where we come in to help you amplify that. To start, you can just do a free strategy call. It's with me. It's totally a no BS, no fluff. It's not a recording. We're actually meet on Zoom in person. You can ask any question you want about anything. We send you away with action items right out of the gate. Uh, so that's the best place to, to start. And where can people go to learn more about that? Yeah. Uh, so to book a strategy session or to meet me, just go to joshbiro.com. And uh, that's it. That's pretty, <laughs> pretty straightforward. I'll add the link to the show notes too. Thank Perfect, you thanks. so much, Josh, for your time today. This has been a really awesome conversation. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Suzanne, for having me. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blissful Biz Podcast. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. This would mean the world to me. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to never miss a new episode. To learn more about how to work with me one-on-one, my courses and membership, or to get instant access to freebies, workshops, and more, go to susannoreicher.com right now. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.